0: blood transfusions, and watchtowers, and 144,000. Oh my. If you've ever had a question about some of the more unique beliefs or practices of the Jehovah's Witnesses, hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll have those all answered. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to encourage Christians to understand why they do what they do and why they believe what they believe so they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. Now in part one of this series, we took kind of an objective, zoomed out look at what it is that the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. We kind of ran down the basics of the religion, as well as how they answer the five big questions about life. If you have not heard that one yet, I would encourage you to listen to it, simply because that lays a foundation for the worldview that they have, so that we can better understand these more specific beliefs that we're going to talk about today. Now, this is going to be a bigger topic. It may not necessarily be a longer episode compared to my normal ones, but there is just a lot of content to it. So I will be putting timestamps down in the show notes so that you can skip to any question that you may want to revisit. Or just if there's a particular question you're looking for and don't want to sit through the whole episode, you should be able to find it down there through that. Now, the goal of this episode isn't to make someone an expert on the Jehovah's Witnesses, but more to further refine our understanding of them so that, as we'll talk about next week, we can do our ultimate goal, which is to share the gospel with someone who needs the true Jesus Christ. And we'll kind of talk a bit more about what I mean by that in this episode. Now, one important thing to know, and I kind of hinted at this in the previous episode, is that Jehovah's Witnesses are infamous for redefining terms that we think we already know and are using in the same way as them. And what I mean by that is that when we talk to a Jehovah's Witness and we're kind of sharing the gospel with them, we may start wondering if we really need to share the gospel with them at all because they will make statements and agree with our statements— saying things like, Jesus died for our sins, and he's the only way to receive salvation. They will agree that Christ is the Son of God. They agree that we live by faith and that the Bible is our source of truth. And it's not just that we agree on those things, but we would both agree that they are crucial for living a Christian life. But as we'll kind of talk about, what we mean by those things and what they mean are very different. And so when we're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, it's important not to just hear them say words or agree with statements, but to dig in and clarify what it is that they mean when they say certain things or agree with things. Now, as for why this happens, you know, I as I've done my research and looked through their website, obviously they're not going to say, "Well, here is why we redefine terms." But from understanding people and even understanding my own Journey that Christ has brought me through, and you know, especially during the time where I was uh, feeling very lost in my own faith and living a bit rebelliously, if I'm honest. I think that one of the reasons that Jehovah's Witnesses redefine terms is because people are naturally attracted to things that they are familiar with but are said and done in a new light, and so by taking things like Jesus and what his death did or who Christ truly was and putting a spin on it in a way that almost unlocks secrets of the Bible. It gives them and people who listen to them this feeling of having kind of a secret knowledge, something that the masses, the mainstream, just don't have. And so they aren't reinventing the wheel. They're not coming up with a completely new religion, but instead they are breathing fresh life into an old one and basically just changing and redefining everything we thought we knew. And as I kind of said last time as well, this is a tactic that is often used by cults. And so what this ends up doing is it throws people off. It gets us, as we're speaking to them, flustered because we'll tell them, hey, you need to trust Jesus Christ for your salvation. And they'll, just rep- they'll reply, oh, but I do. And so that puts us on the defensive, and then from there, what they can then do is capitalize on that and start opening up their Bible and teaching us how we misunderstand what the Bible says. So if you find yourself with the opportunity to share the gospel with a Jehovah's Witness, number one, expect this to happen, and number two, don't be discouraged when it does, because remember that we aren't called to answer their questions But simply to be faithful to the truth of the true Jesus Christ. Now, getting into the more specific things of Jehovah's Witnesses, the first thing I want to talk about is their New World Bible translation and some of the issues that this thing has. Now, as I said, their primary source of truth is the Bible. And when they are traveling around, they will often keep a copy of the King James Version of the Bible on hand for when they talk to people who may be more comfortable with a familiar version of the Bible. They will still say that the New World Translation is the far superior translation of the Bible. Now, what this New World Translation is, is something that was released in 1950, so only about 70 years ago, and based on... What they claim on their own website, the benefits or advantages of the New World Translation is that it updates language while staying true to the original text, it accurately adds the true name Jehovah all throughout the Bible, especially in places where it was wrongly removed, and it translates the Bible literally instead of following human traditions. Now, that seems all well and good, and even exciting to hear. But despite what they claim about the New World Translation, it actually falls apart on some very basic levels. And I'm not going to use this episode to get really deep into Bible translation and interpretation methods. So I just want to give kind of a a basic explanation on how what they claim is true about this translation doesn't actually hold up as well as they say. Now, the first thing to know is that they claim that it is a literal translation, but it's not. Much of the language in the New World Translation is updated in such a way that it is much more of a thought for thought rather than a word for word. Now, the difference between those is if someone were to take the New King James Version, for example, and try to reword it in such a way that it's still pretty close to what is already said. It's, it, it is understandable. You could find where someone is getting this, but they change words or even whole phrases in such a way that it is just easier to understand or it's more in line with what the translator is wanting it to say. So the difference here would be if you were to take something like the New American Standard Bible and compare it to the New Living Translation, and see that verse by verse, you can keep up and see that they're saying basically the same thing. But whereas the New American Standard Bible might be a little harder to read because it's trying to stay more true to the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, the New Living Translation is less reliable, but much, much, much easier to read. And that's what the New World Translation does as well, is it makes it easier to read and is more approachable to a casual reader. But the expense of that is that it loses some of the original meaning of the original language. Now that leads us into the second problem with the new world translation is that it says that it is one, a literal translation and two that it doesn't follow human traditions in its translation methods, which is kind of funny because I think When they define human traditions, they're saying that it doesn't follow man's agenda, but God's agenda. And yet, the entire purpose of the New World Translation is for the Jehovah's Witnesses to have access to a Bible that doesn't have such glaring contradictions to the teachings of their own religion. And so to form this Bible, what they did is they created a six-man committee who came together and as far as we can tell, basically just rewrote the King James Version and changed any areas that disagreed with their beliefs and then kind of updated and rewrote the language so that it wasn't as easy to tell that it was just kind of a copy of the King James Version. And so while they call it faithfully translated and free from human tradition, really what it is is a more Jehovah's Witness-friendly update of an old English translation. And why we are can be pretty confident that this is not something that is faithful to the original languages is that the six translators of this committee knew almost nothing about original languages in the first place. So, based on records... Five of the translators had absolutely no training in the original languages whatsoever. Not Hebrew or Aramaic and not even Greek, which is what the New Testament is translated in. Now, this sixth translator had a little more going for him in that he had had a single year of Bible college. But, and and this is on record, during a court hearing about the Jehovah's Witnesses this translator who had a year of Bible couldn't even identify the Greek letters on a page of a Greek Bible, meaning that this person who claims that their translation was faithful to the original Greek didn't even know his Greek ABCs. So what that ultimately leaves us with is just a version of the Bible that either adds or removes things as it suits the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now for some examples, the most famous one obviously is John 1:1, 1, 1, which says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. So they add a God for Jesus Christ to remove him as having equality with God the Father. Now, if you were to go and read Colossians 1:15 to 20, this talks about how God created things through Christ and in it it says that in in All other translations, it says that all things were created through Christ, but they add all other things were created through Christ in order to be consistent by saying that Jesus Christ was a created being. And then, as we will talk about in a little bit, they don't believe that the Holy Spirit is a person, so they remove all of his pronouns or anything that identifies him as a being and instead paints him as kind of a force. So, for example, in Luke 135, when an angel is telling Mary that the Holy Spirit will come upon her, instead, their version says, Holy Spirit will come upon you. So, this, this idea to them of this Holy Spirit thing is kind of just like a force, a power from God that will move. Now, to sum this up, the biggest problem here isn't that faithful translators who understood the original languages had to make... A difficult decision between two different translations, because if you study Bible translations, every single translator is going to run into this problem. Because, you know, English to Hebrew or English to Greek isn't a simple one-to-one translation. And so instead, what has to be done is that decisions have to be made on what did this mean to the original author and how do we say that in a way that is true and faithful in our English language, or whatever language they're translating it into. Now, in the New World Translation, we don't see any of those struggles. Instead, what we see is that in Greek, when they add words like a to Jesus was a God, that's not in the Greek. It it doesn't translate correctly. You can't do that if you're starting with the original language. And likewise, when they remove words like the Holy Spirit. What they are doing is they are removing a word that is actually there in the original language. So, summed up, New World Translation, they use as their source of truth. They claim that it is the better translation, but ultimately all it is is something that confirms their beliefs without causing any extra problems and ultimately doubts for followers of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, the next problem to discuss, and this one actually isn't in my original article, and it's something that I'm going to add, but it is the question of why do they call God Jehovah and not God or something that is his actual name? And this one's actually kind of interesting and a little bit funny because this is a bit of an oopsie thing that happened. So the in the original Hebrew we have what is called the Tetragrammaton. It is the true name of God. Now, if you're not sure what that is, you may have heard God referred to as Yahweh. Y-A-H-W-E-H. And that is what we would call the true name of God. That is that is who he is. That's what he's called. He, you know, the Bibles today may sometimes translate it as Lord or God, but as I said, in the original, it would just be a straight Yahweh. Now, what's funny, and again, this is a whole weird language thing, but for a time, people thought that Yahweh, which in the Hebrew is simply written as YHWH, they thought that it should be pronounced as Jehovah. And so when Jehovah's Witnesses came on the scene, that was the language understanding of it. And then, fast forward, several years, and people are starting to get a better grip of how languages work and realizing that, oh no, it should actually be pronounced Yahweh. Well, Jehovah's Witnesses are already really doubled down on this idea that the true name of God was Jehovah. And so it's something that they try not to talk about too much because it's a little embarrassing that these people who claim to have recaptured the true name of God are actually saying it the wrong way. But instead are using what is ultimately the kind of Latin translation of his name. And it's something that they'll hand wave away, and they have some excuses for it. But yeah, ultimately that's why they are Jehovah's Witnesses and not Yahweh's Witnesses, is just because they used a a poor translation of God's name and really centered a lot of their identity around it, and now they're just kind of stuck with it. Now, the next thing to discuss is that Christ was created and isn't Jehovah. Now, within the New World Translation, they have a few places that they can go to prove that Christ is certainly a God, but not the God or Jehovah of the Bible. Now, one verse in the New World Translation, as we talked about, is John 1.1, 1, 1, where it says that the Word, or Jesus Christ, was a God. And in Part 3, when we're talking about sharing the Gospel... Which Jehovah's Witnesses, will even talk about why this is kind of funny, because they removed one problematic verse. They talked about Christ being God, but they, in a, a few verses later, kind of missed the mark and forgot to remove or change another verse. Uh, but another verse that they will use is John ten thirty, which says, I and the Father are one. And what they will argue is that this oneness isn't a sameness. They are not of the same essence of one another but instead they are one in purpose. So in the same way that a husband and wife would be one with the goals of their marriage or with their children, Jesus Christ and Jehovah are one in purpose and in their desires. Now, another one where they have clearly changed things to make it make sense is John 8:58 where it says that Jesus said to them, most truly I say to you before Abraham came into existence I have been. Now, this has changed from before Abraham was, I am, where Christ is clearly identifying himself as the eternal God, and is especially a reference to the burning bush in Exodus. But again, they had to change it to make it work with them. Uh, now in John 14:28, 28, uh, at the end of this verse, it talks about how for the Father is greater than I am. Again, this seems to be a crystal clear thing that... Jesus is less than God and therefore not equal to Him. In Colossians 1.15, it also talks about how Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation, and this is a very popular and easy one for them to go to and say, "Aha! See, Jesus was the firstborn. He was the first creation in everything." And on the surface, this is a confusing verse. You know, even in a a good Bible translation, it will say "firstborn," and it, it's very confusing. And that is because we do not have a good understanding of how language and context updates over time. Now, if you look in the Bible, being firstborn isn't just a, a sequence of events. You know, Just because you are the first one born in your family isn't necessarily why you're called the firstborn. Instead, the firstborn is a position, often, yes, given to the child who was born first. But being the firstborn is the, one, is the child who, in, in ancient biblical times, would have a lot of privilege and responsibility placed on them. And when their parents passed, they would be the inheritors of almost everything. And so through that, what that means is that Jesus Christ, just like a firstborn, was set apart. It doesn't mean he was the first creation, but that he was unique and one of a kind. And so when you actually read the context of this entire verse, what we are seeing is that here Paul is describing Jesus Christ as the creator and ruler and sustainer of the universe, and so it kind of makes sense that Paul might say that he is unique, that he has certain privileges as, you know, within the universe that no one else has. Jesus Christ is unique among everything else. Now, like any bad theology, the Jehovah's Witnesses have to isolate and redefine individual verses in order to support their beliefs. And as Christians, we're guilty of this too, where we will take a single verse or a single clump of verses and say, look, here is what truth is, because we can see it here, and we ignore everything else that the Bible has to say. And yet, when they went and retranslated the Bible, it was... A little bit difficult to fully scrub away the reality that Christ is the eternal God, simply because the Bible has so much to say about it. And just some examples. Uh, in Hebrews 1, it goes to great lengths to show that Christ is simply not an angel. Uh, Hebrews 1, 8-9 even makes a blunt statement of the Father outright referring to Jesus Christ as God. Romans 9, 5 References Christ and then immediately refers to him as God. And then Colossians 2 8 talks about how the fullness of God dwells in Christ. Now, these, of course, are not magic bullet answers, and Jehovah's Witnesses are trained to answer these passages. And we'll explain how they are trained and why. But a lot of times when you bring these verses up, they will use rabbit trails and try to distract you with you know, secondary discussions instead of staying focused on a passage like this. So if you find yourself trying to talk to a Jehovah's Witness and share things from the Bible with them and you find yourself getting lost and distracted, really the key thing is to make them go against their training and make them stay focused on what the Bible is clearly saying. Now, next problem is that if Christ isn't God, then what is he? And they would say that Christ is an archangel. And more specifically, he is the archangel Michael that we see mentioned in the Bible. Now, this one's just kind of hard to argue against them if it ever comes up, simply because there's no biblical support for it whatsoever. But it is a curious thing, and it is kind of core to their beliefs and their arguments. So where they get this from is in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And this is where in the New American Standard version, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So what they are claiming here is that when Christ descends from heaven, he will shout with the voice of an archangel, and he will blow the trumpet of God. Now, we know that if Christ is going to shout with the voice of an archangel, there's only one archangel in the Bible, which is Michael. Therefore... Christ is using the voice of Michael, which is himself, to shout. And then likewise, we also see in places in the Bible where it talks about Christ and his angels, implying that Christ is leading people who are lesser than him, or beings, I should say, that are lesser than him, being that they are angels and he is an archangel. He is an elevated or higher version of them. Now, if a Jehovah's Witness insists on getting caught up on this point and you know despite you going to Hebrews 1 and showing how no this says that Christ is clearly not an angel and is above the angels then you can very simply even just point out that their proof verse of 1 Thessalonians 4:16 doesn't say that Christ is the one shouting or giving the archangel command or even blowing the trumpet that's like saying that because a bride walks down the aisle to the wedding march that she is the one playing it. No. What this is saying is that just like that bride, he is accompanied by it. It will herald his arrival. So an archangel will shout, there will be trumpets blown, but that doesn't mean that Christ is the one doing it. Now, in the next episode, I will share one way to show them why it is completely illogical and even against their own Bible to say that Christ was simply a God. And a creation, and that one will be potentially easier. But I want to share one other way now that we can debunk this idea that Christ was created, and that is simply using Genesis one one. Now I've shared this example in the past, and I know that it's one of those that is can be a little harder to grasp. I'm not, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. If you find yourself listening and it's, you know, at, at the moment it's kind of going over your head or it sounds weird, just stick with it and get to the next point here because this isn't a necessary thing, but it is a good thing if we want to simply show them logically why what they're saying doesn't make sense. Now, Genesis 1.1, we know, says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, within science, there is a basic understanding that kind of the foundations of existence are built on three things. We have, and I guess the way to think about it is, is picture in your mind, if you will, A box, a ball, and a stopwatch. Now the box represents space so when we put the ball in there that that ball is occupying space within the box. Space is a container for all things to exist in and that stopwatch is something that we would start as soon as we put the ball in there to help us determine how long that ball has existed within the box. Now, obviously, this is a very weak and very basic picture, but it's getting the point across that this is kind of the foundations of existence, right? We have the ball represents matter. It's what everything is made out of. It's physical objects. It's, you know, all the way down to atoms. We also have space, and I'm not talking outer space, but literally the space that we occupy. So wherever you are is filled with human bodies and maybe animal bodies and stuff, that's all matter, but all that matter isn't compressed together and touching. There is distance between you, and that's how it is throughout everywhere, right? There's, a, there's a distance between physical things. There's even distance between things at the most microscopic level. You know that, that is what space is. And then time is simply everything has existed in the universe for a certain amount of time. Time and matter and space are not eternal things. They all had to start... At a certain time. Now, when it comes to them saying that Christ was the first thing that was created, and through Christ, God the Father made everything else, we run into some logical problems because for Christ to be created, he had to be made of material, even in a spiritual sense. He had to be made of of some spiritual essence. So that stuff had to be made first. He also had to exist in a place somehow because to be a being that has had a beginning he has to have been placed in a box and he had to be in that box from a certain amount of time he can't have always been in the box so the box had to be created the stopwatch had to be created to start and the ball had to be created to be placed in there so we run into a lot of problems because Genesis 1-1 talks about how God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. Those are the three components of everything, right? It's in the beginning is time, the heavens is space, and the earth is simply all material things in the universe. And so for Christ to pre-exist to these things is simply impossible, And I've got a a much more thorough breakdown of this in my article that I will link in the show notes. But basically, the idea of Christ being created is simply an impossible thing. Because if he wasn't, then he would have had to exist eternally with God, which necessarily makes him have to be equal with God and to be God. Now, next, let's uh, move on from Jesus Christ and talk about the Holy Spirit and their teaching is that he is not a person, and they have just general issues with the Trinity as it is. Now, as we've discussed, the Holy Spirit had his name completely altered in the New World Translation, uh, and what they did is they removed anything that marked him as a person, and instead forcing him to be thought of as some kind of power that comes from God. Now, This is important for them because Jehovah's Witnesses are very adamant that Jehovah is one God and that believing in a trinity is actually making us Christians no different than pagans who worship multiple gods. And this is an old accusation that Christians have faced really since the early church. And the lengths that Jehovah's Witnesses have to go to to translate their Bible in a way that makes the Holy Spirit not a person is... Kind of astounding and a little bit exhausting, and again, completely goes against anything that would be found in the original translations or the original versions of the Bible. So, if you were to pause this episode and go get John 14 and read verses 16 to 17, this is where Christ is talking about how he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And he talks about how Christ is going to ask the Father and he'll send another helper. And then he says, that he may be with you forever, that is the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So, you know, listening to that, you know, I really emphasized the pronouns describing the Holy Spirit as marking him as an actual being and not an it or a force. And so, listen to how the New World Translation has to Render that verse in order to make God out to be who they want him to be instead of who he is. So, uh, in, in the original translation, Christ says that Christ calls him the Holy Spirit of truth. And then the neural translation jumps in and calls him the Holy Spirit of, or I'm sorry, they call him the Spirit of the truth, which the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees it nor knows it. You know it because it remains with you and is in you. So, again, basically just taking the original translation from English and just pulling out any personal identifiers of the Holy Spirit and instead plugging the word it in and rewording things in such a way that removes any identity from him and instead just makes him out to be a force or a power. Now, another problem within Jehovah's Witnesses is the entire purpose of Christ's death and what our faith actually means. So within the religion, they will tell you that Christ died on a torture stake to pay a ransom for the innocent life that Adam lost. And by repenting of sin and calling on the name of Jehovah, not Christ, a person is saved. For now. But this salvation isn't granted easily and has to be gained and kept by works that demonstrate a person's faith. And that's, like I said, the core of how they would explain salvation, at least within their own religion. It's a free gift from God, yes, but it can't be gained or held on to without doing things that prove that we have faith. Now, they will claim that this isn't salvation by works, but again, that's that redefinition of terms, because they say that works prove a person's faith. And so faith to them is basically works-based. Faith isn't something that generates works, but they are almost interchangeable. And in that if you say you have faith, that means that you have works. That means that you are doing things that prove that you want this salvation. And now, for the most part, the best way to get salvation is to be within the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, but they will at least give lip service to the idea that those outside of the religion can earn their salvation by living a good life that makes God happy. I'm not totally convinced that they truly believe that. So more than they say that in order to make their whole, whole religion seem more open and accommodating. Uh, but where they will say that all people have a form of hope is kind of found in Acts 24:15, uh, which talks about how there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, and to them, they say that that means that everyone will be resurrected, everyone will be remembered by God, as long as they have earned a certain amount of his grace or his favor in order to get it. Now, the reason I say I'm not totally sure if they believe that is because baptism is kind of a big deal within Jehovah's Witnesses, and if you're not part of them, you're not getting baptized biblically by their standards. So it's, it's a little bit murky from what I've been able to find. But let's talk about how they view everything that Christ did. So they would say that basically Christ entered into a hostage negotiation situation where he paid a ransom for us so that we could then go to heaven, which sounds good, right? Because uh, in Ephesians 1, 7, and this is in the New World Translation, it says, By means of him, we have the release by ransom through the blood of that one. Yes, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his undeserved kindness. And now, depending on your translation, instead of released by ransom, you might see redemption. Uh, Now, in Romans 5.19, we can see a similar idea, and I'll even read it from the New American Standard Bible. It says, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous. And their translation would roughly agree with that. Now, verses like this are used to show that Christ entered into a hostage negotiation and paid a ransom for us. And so here is kind of the breakdown of how they would see everything from the fall until Christ's death. So they would say that Jehovah gave Adam a perfect life. When Adam sinned, his perfect life was lost, meaning that we all as his future generations also lost access to this perfect life. Now, Christ came to give up his own perfect life in exchange for it. And so, at the torture stake, Christ was tortured because Satan said that no man would remain faithful to Jehovah under torture. Now, after Christ stayed faithful to Jehovah under torture, he was resurrected as a spirit, not bodily. His body wasn't resurrected. He was resurrected as a spirit, and then eventually returned to heaven. When he returned to heaven, he gave Jehovah the value of his perfect physical life to pay for the loss of Adam's life. So it was a one-to-one thing. Adam threw away his perfect physical life. Christ redeemed that perfect life, and that's why his resurrection couldn't be physical, because he gave his physical life to Jehovah. Now today, by accepting Jehovah's gift of salvation, we can live a perfect life again. Our sins are forgiven, and we can have a guilt-free conscience through continued forgiveness of sin. And if we remain faithful to Jehovah, we can live forever. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. But the greatest error that Jehovah's Witnesses make is a complete misunderstanding of why Christ had to die. The idea that Christ simply went to restore what Adam lost makes it necessary for us to work to earn our salvation because in this theology, Christ didn't pay for our sins. He just gave us a way to seek forgiveness for when we mess up. And so Christ's sacrifice was kind of a token sacrifice. It didn't really accomplish anything except to kind of reset our bad behaviors to zero. Instead, we know that Christ didn't just give a token sacrifice, but that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. You know, God punished him in our place for every single individual sin that we've created. So the debt that Christ paid was specific. It's like Sending $5,000 into your credit card company to pay off a $5,000 credit card debt. It was a one-to-one payment. Payment was owed to God, and Christ paid it all. And so when the Bible is talking about how Christ paid the ransom for our sin, that's not some kind of exchange of one bad life for a good life. And it's not paying a ransom to Satan. He paid a ransom to God the Father because... God is just, he is a good judge, and his wrath needed to be satisfied because evil was done and evil must be punished. And so Christ paid the necessary price in our place because we never could. And throughout the Bible, we can see the reality of Christ paying our own debts that we owed. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried two verses later in Isaiah 53, 6. It says that the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. First John 2, 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is this idea of appeasing someone or satisfying a debt that is owed. And in Colossians 2:16 says, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he is taking it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So, again, just really think about that. That this, is no, this has no hint of Christ just you know, coming so that we can be better people, but instead him paying the debt that we have racked up and are still racking up in this life. So it's not just about Christ coming to correct Adam's sin. That was a part of it, right? We see that in the Bible, but that's not all there was to it. Christ was our substitute under God's wrath. So every lie we've told, he paid for. He paid the punishment, the penalty for our sin. So sin's not just this kind of ambiguous cloud that God decided to sweep away and ignore, but it's literally a mounting debt. Every time we are sinning, we are asking Jesus Christ to take the punishment in our place. So to sum up this one, the reality of Christ's sacrifice simply leaves no room for Jehovah's Witnesses' understanding of salvation. One, Christ didn't die so he could trade his life for Adam's. He died directly and specifically to pay for our individual sin. Number two is that we don't call on the name of Jehovah for salvation. If you go and read Acts 4 verses 8 through 12, it's very clear that there is no name except Jesus Christ that saves us. And number three, we don't work to show our faith. You know, this is a very confusing thing for, you know, even you know, the best of Christians sometimes, but James two, fourteen to eighteen makes it clear that faith comes first and that works are just a natural result of genuine faith. So if you think about it like someone walking through the house being soaking wet, if you're soaking wet, you're gonna leave wet footprints. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are naturally going to produce works. It's just a natural thing that's going to happen. Faith isn't something that we conjure up by our own efforts, but it is a a thing that is given to us and then through that, the Holy Spirit works in our lives. You know, if you go read Galatians 5:22 to 23, which is the fruit of the Spirit. Those are things that come as a result of the Spirit's work in our life. The Spirit is given to us when we have faith, and faith, we know, is a gift of God. So none of this has anything to do with us and our efforts and us proving ourselves to God that we are somehow worthy of salvation, because we know, truly and deep down, that we could never be. Now, that's going to wrap up kind of the more doctrinal beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses, the kind of more specific teachings that they have. So now I just want to finish this up by going through some other important things that are worth knowing, and these might be a little more of the, you know, kind of interesting topics that people have always wondered about. Now, a lot of these probably won't come up in an actual conversation with the Jehovah's Witness, but by understanding it, it gives us better insight into their worldview and why they do some of the things they do. Now, the first thing to talk about is how the Jehovah's Witnesses control their members through isolation, shunning, and disfellowshipping. Now, as I was doing my research on Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, I I spent a lot of time reading the Jehovah's Witness material. I read material that disagreed with them, and I also spent a lot of time, almost a heartbreaking amount of time, reading stories of former Jehovah's Witnesses who have since left the religion. And very few of them have any good things to say about the religion. Now, a common theme running through the stories of ex-witnesses is the absolute control the religion has on its members. Now, within their own material, they give lip service to allowing people to leave if they choose. The reality is that growing up as a Jehovah's Witness often means that you have very minimal life skills, you have no friends outside of other witnesses, and you have an inbuilt fear of anything that's not directly related to the truth that is approved by the governing body. So within families, there is a constant idea of an us-versus-them worldview. It's Jehovah's Witnesses versus the sinful world. And the practices of the church even reinforce this idea that the Jehovah's Witnesses are the only safe place for those who want to love God, or Jehovah. And we can even see this in our most kind of stereotypical idea of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and that is the two guys who come knocking on our door. And that is because Jehovah's Witnesses are encouraged, whether they're in elementary school and talking to their friends, or whether it's putting in work for the kingdom hall, they're encouraged to, in a good way, go out and tell people about the truth of Jehovah, but to do so in a way that is almost overbearing and a bit obnoxious. And this isn't by accident. It's not just that they have a poor public relations team. They're encouraged to do this because they know that by, you know, constantly going door to door by, you know, regularly telling their friends about the truth of Jehovah, they are going to face very frequent rejection and criticism and mockery. Now, if you, a person is kind of isolated within their own circle of Jehovah's Witness friends, right? They're, they exist in a bubble, and the only time they leave that bubble, they get ridiculed and mocked and rejected by the world. Think about what that is reinforcing in their mind. They are seeing that the rest of the world hates them, that they are not welcoming to them, and that there is no safety outside of the Jehovah's Witness bubble. And not only that, but they will use that rejection to say, see, you know that you are doing the true work of Jehovah because you are told that the world's going to hate you for the good that you represent. And so while we as Christians are told that people should hate us because of Christ, Jehovah's Witnesses are encouraged to be hated because of their behavior, which unfortunately is kind of also indicative of a big part of Christianity today. Now, Let's say, though, that someone simply can't abide living in the Jehovah's Witness bubble. They are willing to risk the world out there and all the mockery and hatred that it has for them. Even if someone's willing to leave or to even just try to stay within the church but live a life that goes against their teachings, and that is a very, very easy thing to do, there is a very heavy price to pay if you choose to leave or if you choose to try to stay but live in such a way that is against what has been advised by the governing body or the elders at your kingdom hall, then you are basically kicked out of any kind of fellowship with people that you may have known for 30, 40, 50 years of your life. And that is because when you are disfellowshipped, which means to be removed from the good standing within Jehovah's Witnesses, to be kicked out of the Jehovah's Witnesses effectively. So the first is that you are shunned, and that doesn't mean that people talk to you less. It means that literally you are marked by the Jehovah's Witnesses, and every single faithful Jehovah's Witnesses has to reject and ignore your existence, including your own parents and siblings. And one story even shared how this isn't just being kicked out of the house sometimes you still live in in your house with your family but no one will talk to you and they will tell you that they are not allowed to talk to you because they you've been disfellowshipped so you so everything you knew you know all your friends all your family now has to reject you everyone that you ever relied on throughout your whole life you are now dead to them so that's that's one huge personal consequence The second one is that to leave the Jehovah's Witnesses is to give up your salvation. So basically, the Jehovah's Witnesses keep their people in line by threatening their very eternal existence. And so to leave the Jehovah's Witnesses isn't just to leave a certain belief system or a group of people. It's literally to walk away from your only hope of salvation, from death and destruction. Now, usually when people reach a point where They want to leave the Jehovah's Witnesses and are willing to get disfellowshipped. They probably don't believe in that anymore. But those people who might even consider questioning things are dissuaded from doing that because they don't want to risk being wrong and having their salvation stripped from them. And so think about just how much control the governing body gets over its members— Because not only do you have to stay just within the Jehovah's Witnesses in general, but you have to completely and unquestioningly follow the teachings of their governing body or risk being disfellowshipped. And so to do things and to live a life that is contrary to what they say is good, and I'll I'll get into this a bit later, but examples of that are very obvious things. But there's also some very narrow and almost sometimes silly things. So some examples of things that people have gotten disfellowshipped for is using apostate study methods. Now an apostate is someone who has basically abandoned or rejected a true faith. And that would basically be anything that we would produce and give to them. Uh, It would also mean studying the original languages. So not just trusting the New World Translation, but to actually do your own work of studying the original languages that would be worthy of disfellowshipping using things like non-Jehovah's Witness commentaries. So if you were to give them you know, your own kind of study notes or a book even that kind of talks about the Bible and it's not produced by Jehovah's Witness, if they were to read that and use that, they would risk being disfellowshipped. Another way is to question the teaching and beliefs of a governing body, just in general. If you were to go to a secular college, that puts you at risk of being disfellowshipped. And it doesn't seem to be an always thing, but kind of the underwriting thing is, if you are called to serve the kingdom, why are you going to a college to become a doctor or a teacher when you could be serving Jehovah instead? Um, Another risk is if you enjoy too much non-spiritual entertainment. So as an example of this, um, I listened to a a guy share his life story of kind of what it was like for him and the Jehovah's witnesses. And he, at one point got really, really into film. So, you know, movies and things like that. And he had a very serious sit down because he had gone and seen a Marvel movie. So, you know, the, the Marvel superheroes, he had gone to see a Marvel movie and they really wanted to know why he would do that because the Marvel movie was Thor which is a superhero who is, you know, loosely based on the Norse god of thunder, and they were very concerned about that. And there's just a lot of stories like that where it's not just, you know, someone, you know, being really extreme, you know, going to a gentleman's club or, you know, going out and partying and getting, you know, really drunk and things like that. You know, nothing extreme that we would think of, but just. Reading fantasy books, reading Lord of the Rings would be cause for concern and probably get you a meeting with an elder elder or two. Um, Another dangerous thing is putting yourself in a compromising position with the opposite sex. And by compromising position, it's if anyone says, hey, I'm uncomfortable with this, even if there's no misconduct proven or even possible, as long as two people of the opposite sex are anywhere in a in a way, even out in public, where they're just together and people think something might be going on, that is a potential where there's gonna be an intervention. And I've even read a a story of someone who their friend was and their family was um kicked out of the religion because a the daughter was kind of getting to know one of the elder sons and It almost sounded like a class system thing where he didn't want his son associating with that family. And so the entire family basically was told to disfellowship their daughter or the whole family would have to go. And so the family chose, you know, their child instead of being bullied. Um, And then another way is simply not putting in enough time to your local kingdom hall. And so, you know, all this summed up, you know, you've heard it's my way or the highway, And that is really the motto of the Jehovah's Witnesses. You work to not only prove yourself to Jehovah that you have salvation, but your entire life is spent proving yourself to other Jehovah's Witnesses and trying to make them think that you are this perfect, ideal person. Meanwhile, they are also so busy with their own lives trying to prove themselves to you. And so it's this constant... Life of people trying to impress one another and look perfect for one another. And, you know, behind closed doors, I mean, families having absolute meltdowns because a child did something that embarrassed them and made other Jehovah's Witnesses look at them as though maybe they aren't a perfect family. And so, you know, understanding that, it shouldn't surprise us when we talk to a Jehovah's Witness that they don't want to listen to reason or even listen to sound biblical understanding, because to them, we are painted as apostates. We misrepresent the truth of Jehovah. And so to them, listening to false Christians like us would be like us listening to someone teaching us about Islam. You know, there might be some similarities there, you know, we might use some of the same material, but the differences are far too different for us to really consider them to be a part of our truth. And so that's a really hard thing. is because they say so many things that we say. They they seem to believe a lot of what we believe. But they see us as so other. That it's not just, oh, one side might be kind of misunderstanding things. But instead they are two totally different belief systems. And one is very wrong and is in league with Satan. And the other one is right and true. So another thing And kind of going along with that whole idea of making sure you're always in the right is that all of your study materials have to be approved by the governing body. Now, as I shared in the last episode, the Jehovah's Witnesses are probably going to be better Bible students than most of us. And that is because they are encouraged to basically spend their whole lives studying the different materials and to be very diligent students of the Bible, which is from the outside commendable. However, they aren't allowed to study the Bible independently, nor, as I said, can they use outside information or other materials. The governing body are the only ones who are capable of accurately understanding what's taught in the Bible, and so any material they create is the only thing that is going to truly give someone a true understanding of the Bible. Now, to be clear... It's not just that material made by the Governing Body is helpful. Uh, As I talked about last week, the Watchtower is basically kind of an ongoing series of Bible study material produced by the Governing Body. And the Watchtower magazine and other things that they create are put on the exact same level of truth as the Bible, and maybe even more so. And that's because you can read the Watchtower without opening your Bible— But you cannot study God's word without having governing body-approved material nearby. Now, another thing to kind of focus on is the idea that the Jehovah's Witnesses believe they are the true church. So, on the surface, they seem very polite and very easygoing and opening to people. But deep down, the Jehovah's Witnesses consider themselves to be the only true church of Jesus Christ— They believe that Christianity split from the teachings of Christ and the apostles almost immediately, and that it has only corrected itself with the founding and spreading of the Jehovah's Witnesses in the 1900s, meaning that for almost 2,000 years, there was no true Church of Christ on earth. And so understanding that, it's incredibly difficult to convince them of our own beliefs, while they still cling to the teachings of the governing body, because every other form of biblical Christianity is labeled as apostate. And we are often considered to be the great whore of Babylon as we work with Satan to lead the world to a false religion and try to pull Christ's true followers away from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, the bigger bigger implication of how much emphasis they place on being the true church is what it means for salvation because jehovah's witnesses aren't saved by grace through faith when armageddon finally comes they are not going to be remembered by jehovah based on the forgiveness of their sins instead what matters most to them is that they die in good standing with the jehovah's witness organization so regardless of their personal holiness Their greatest hope of salvation isn't found in the grace of God, but at the mercy of the governing body. Now, important fact number whatever we're on is that the Jehovah's Witnesses place a huge emphasis on death and the kingdom. Now, if you've ever received Jehovah's Witness material in the mail, the only thing it's really going to talk about is our fear of death and what comes next. Because Really, like most cults, they play on people's fear and gives them an answer that they may be seeking. And so, within almost anything they create, and especially the material they use to recruit others, it always revolves around the permanence of death and the glory of being a part of Christ's kingdom. And so, there's little to no talk about our guilt before a holy God or our need for a perfect Savior— And instead, it's about what we get if we repent and pursue good lives. Now, that's not all they're about, and as people take more steps and are drawn more into dependence on Jehovah's Witnesses instead of Christ, they'll see more and more of the religion. But at the very surface level, they recruit people by basically saying, hey, isn't death scary? We've got your back. All right, now, kind of the big one that maybe some people have just skipped forward in the episode to is explaining the 144,000. Now, I know this is a big one, because whenever people know that I have kind of studied out the Jehovah's Witness religion, or written my lengthy article series about it, or now am recording a podcast about it, one of the first questions they ask is, hey, what is up with the 144,000? Do they not know how to do basic math and realize that there's already more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses out there. Like, why do they recruit people? Why do they tell people about it and kind of risk pushing themselves out of this special number? And it's a good question, because there are reportedly millions of Jehovah's Witnesses around the world today. And so the more they go tell people about Jehovah, aren't they kind of stacking the odds against themselves? You know, why, why try to convert people and risk your own position? Well, the reality is that there are very few Jehovah's Witnesses out there that have any hope of being one of these special 144,000, and odds are good that any Jehovah's Witness that you talk to is not going to be one of these, and, and they'll, they'll say that, and they're content with that. Instead, what they want to do is maintain their salvation and their good standing within Jehovah's Witnesses so that they can be a part of the great crowd— who get eternal life on earth. Now where they get that is in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 4, which says, and this is for the the 144,000, which are called the anointed ones. It says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the sons of Israel. So this is the idea that there are certain individuals who have been sealed. They have been kind of handpicked by Jehovah to be What could maybe best be described as prophets on earth? They are those who have a direct line to God and can accurately understand and interpret His will and what He says in the Bible. Now, as for the great crowd, we see this just a few verses later in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And again, this is read from the New World Translation, which says, after this, I saw and look a great crowd, which no man was able to number, out of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb. And then you could read on to see what they're doing there. So here we see that this great crowd is standing before the throne in heaven, and you know they're dressed up and they're you know singing praises. Um, so another thing they say that most of His witnesses will be doing can be found in Psalm 37 29, which says the righteous will possess the earth and they will live forever on it. So to kind of sum up what is going on with this whole numbers game is that God will choose exactly 144,000 faithful Christians who are called the anointed to serve in heaven as rulers of the earth. Now, how this has played out through history seems to have kind of fluctuated and changed over time, but the general idea seems to be that there was a, a huge amount of anointed ones early in the church. So around the time of the apostles, uh, throughout history, a few have been scattered around here and there, but then recently a great number were called as God's true church grew and spread across America and eventually the world. Now, There's no formal way to know if someone is anointed. According to the governing body, if someone fits the criteria of a faithful Jehovah's Witness, and they wonder if maybe they're anointed, then they definitely aren't. Because someone who is anointed simply knows they are. And as we'll talk in a little bit, only the anointed are allowed to take communion. So during their Passover celebration, if you're looking around and you see someone take part in communion then you know that they at least believe that they are an anointed. So again, most witnesses know that they aren't anointed, and they're fine with it. They still want to avoid death, and they still want to be remembered by God as part of the great crowd. Now, a couple issues you may notice with this is, one, in Reve- in the Revelation passage, this crowd is in heaven. They're around the throne of God in heaven, and yet... Their other passage says that they are going to rule the earth, and they would teach that to be part of the anointed means you'll be in heaven. To be part of the great crowd means that you'll be on earth. And so it's a little hard to justify them. Of course, there are ways, but that is a problem that they run into when they take two different passages and try to make them talk about the same thing. Another issue that you may notice that I always find funny with a lot of More modern religions is that they always take place in America. The church has always been lost, but then someone in America finds it. And, you know, now God's church can continue because we found it. And, you know, that's absolutely not a knock against America, but we know that in America we are kind of a very prideful bunch. And so the idea that. You know, God's true church would be discovered by a person in one of the most individualistic countries in the world is just humor that probably shouldn't be lost on us. Now, kind of continuing on with this, uh, let's talk about failed prophecies and how the Jehovah's Witnesses explain them away. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses have such a history of failed prophecies that they've actually had to make a statement about why they keep making these prophecies that don't come true. They have had several attempts of predicting the return of Christ and the Armageddon of the world, and so much so that the anointed had their numbers sealed in 1935. And what that means is that they said that God, or Jehovah, had called his 144,000 anointed ones, that number was sealed, and there would be no more. And this probably came because the governing body started doing a little bit of math and realizing that their stories and their their history that they had created had probably made them hit the cap sometime recently. So they had to seal that and say that there were no more anointed ones coming. But that was fine to them because they were convinced that Christ was returning and the world was going to get blown up anyway. Now, as for how they handle these failed prophecies, within the religion, they just kind of hand wave them away. You know, it's something that we just don't talk about, we don't question And those on the outside who pointed out are just ignored because they just don't get it. Now, within the official statement, they would say that these prophecies were just estimates and not legitimate prophecies, even though at the time they were given as legitimate prophecies. And so one way we can see this is back in 1914, they made this big to-do about how Christ was coming and he was going to set up his kingdom. But then time came and went and they said, oh no, This came true, it's just not how we thought it was. And so there's just a lot of attempts like that to kind of save face. And we see this again, um, if you remember, back in 1935, so going on almost 90 years ago, the Anointed Ones were sealed. Well, time went on and they started realizing that the governing body was dying off, and they needed to elect new anointed ones to keep releasing teachings through the watchtower. And so, despite declaring that God had reached his 144,000, that that hard number had been hit, the cap was reached, they declared that the anointed had been unsealed once again, and they could start finding more anointed ones to join the governing body. So now let's talk about holidays, birthdays, and religious symbols within Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, if you find any Jehovah's Witnesses who are talking about coming out of the religion, and especially if they've recently come out, you'll often see them doing one of three things if they share a picture of themselves. One, they will be drinking alcohol. Two, they might be celebrating Christmas. Or three, they'll blow out the candles on their very first birthday cake as maybe a 35-year-old adult. Now, a lot of what drives Jehovah's Witnesses to stay away from any kind of bad behavior or certain kinds of celebrations is the fear of paganism. There are countless Watchtower articles on their website that explain why these things need to be rejected, and it always boils down to Witnesses rejecting any hints of paganism and what they do. And to a degree, as Christians, we should respect that because we also want to make sure that we are not taking part in things that might damage our testimony or damage our relationship with God without us realizing it. But Jehovah's Witnesses take this to an extreme and will constantly live lives of rejecting and avoiding anything in the world. Now, the only holiday that a Jehovah's Witness does recognize is the memorial of Christ's death that occurs around Passover. And as I said, this is when the anointed ones are allowed to take part in communion. But otherwise, things like Easter and Christmas and even more traditional Christian holidays or observances are completely ignored. And if you you know, went to school with the Jehovah's Witness, you know that they are banned from even taking part in anything related to holidays during school time. Now, not only are holidays a problem, but according to the Governing Body, God is also not pleased with birthdays. And this is because it allegedly has pagan roots, but also because the Bible and the early church say nothing about celebrating birthdays. And so because the Bible doesn't prescribe it, we avoid it. And if you visit the FAQ on their website, You can even see quotes from children who express gratitude that they don't have birthdays, and they say that they don't even need birthdays, which is really heartbreaking to read because you know that even if these are genuine quotes from kids, you know why they said it based on everything else we know about the Jehovah's Witnesses. And the level of thought control that goes into that is a bit overwhelming to consider sometimes but finally witnesses will also reject all forms of religious symbols in their worship and this is a result of the biblical commands to flee from idolatry along with Christ's command to, to be identified by our love and by extension then not our symbols and so Jehovah's witnesses are also very insistent that Christ didn't die on a cross and that using a cross is actually using a pagan sex symbol. Instead, they would say that Christ died on a torture stake, and that is something they are very insistent about, and they will fight you tooth and nail about. And the reason they say that is because cross, the the word for cross could also be translated as tree. And so they would say that he was killed on basically just a large wooden pole that was set in the ground. Does it matter? No. But it's a... It's, again, one of those things where they can say, oh, look at what Christianity's gotten wrong all these years. And the final thing that I want to talk about is the idea of blood transfusions. And this is one that baffles people in the medical field, and a lot of people have wondered about quite a bit. So, in the Bible, we are forbidden from ingesting blood. Uh, in Leviticus 17.10, and I'll just read this out of the NASB, it says, any man... In, From the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Pretty big deal. In Acts 15, verses 28 and 29, It says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. And so, again, we see pretty clear accounts by their interpretation in Leviticus and in Acts, so Old and New Testament, that... We are to abstain from people's blood entering us. Now, this is talking about drinking blood, and historically we would understand that this is taking part in a religious practice of ingesting blood, not necessarily blood itself being a problem. But they take this interpretation to mean that any foreign blood entering our bodies defiles us and angers Jehovah. And so they do not take part in anything related to blood, but especially with how modern science has advanced, they will not accept blood transfusions for their members. And so there are stories that I've read where you have a church leader sitting in a hospital with someone who is dying, and their goal there isn't really to comfort them or to give them hope, but to remind them to stay strong in their faith and to refuse the life-saving blood transmissions that could save their lives so that they can continue to honor Jehovah and so that he will remember them after they die, which could be very soon based on the circumstances. And so, unsurprisingly and very sadly, there's a heartbreaking number of stories of these people who lost their lives on an operating table or sat there as their systems slowly shut down Because they would refuse blood transfusions, and their bodies would not accept the artificial blood substitutes that the Jehovah's Witnesses are okay with. So that is going to do it for this episode. Uh, What we've discussed are really either things that are important to know when talking to a Jehovah's Witness and sharing the gospel with them, Or there are things like the blood transfusions or birthdays, where they are just curiosities that a lot of people tend to wonder about. There's so much more to the Jehovah's Witnesses that we could discover and understand how they have changed basic doctrines and beliefs, how they control their members, or just how they use bad Bible-reading methods to create their rules. But in the end, I hope that it is clear with the last episode, and especially the first half of this one, just how much the Jehovah's Witnesses need the good news of Jesus Christ. A lot of their life is spent in fear. They fear Jehovah and angering him and not being remembered by him in the resurrection. And maybe even more than that, they fear the governing body taking away their salvation for the slightest infraction. And so they spend their entire lives doing everything they can to prove to others and even prove to themselves that they have faith. And it's exhausting because they have no hope. They have no peace in their life. Everything about their lives is dedicated to performance, not in finding hope in Christ, not in finding peace with God, but in just trying to hang on long enough to die in good standing with an organization. And yet because of all the control and manipulation that goes on, the only place they feel safe— is with the very people who are doing them the most harm. And so in the next episode, I want to discuss how we take all this understanding we have of the Jehovah's witnesses and use that to kind of tailor and direct how we share the gospel with them because they, they form their entire lives around caring about the things of God. And yet they can't please God because they need more than anything, more than good behavior more than doing work and impressing people. What they need most is the truth of Jesus Christ in order to be truly forgiven of their sin so that they can enjoy the peace and freedom that is truly found in our God and Savior. So thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Remember that this is a listener-supported ministry, so if you would like to support Onward in the Faith, through either a one-time donation or through monthly support, you can visit the links down in the show notes. Remember that timestamps for this episode are also going to be down in the show notes, along with any uh, Bible passages that were used or other important links that you might want to check out. Now, I hope that this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith toward maturity in Christ.